Welcome back to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by David French, Steve Hayes, and Jonah Goldberg. Today, we are going to talk about the stalled Biden agenda, whether Joe Manchin is helping or hurting Democrats, the CIA's role in Afghanistan as it evolves, and finally, is the doom and gloom over 2024 overstating the case? Let's dive in. Jonah, Biden's agenda, where does it stand? Um, I think it's stalled, stuck, uh, problematic. Uh, I Just before we started recording this, I saw on TV that the official infrastructure talks have broken down. Um, and um, I have uh, my LA Times column is, is up at the dispatch. I, my basic thesis is that... Uh, Biden was misled by a bunch of liberal historians who said he could be FDR. He was misled by the fact that his first COVID relief package was very, very popular. And they seem to have assumed that because that was popular, um, uh, other aspects of the Biden agenda would be popular. And it turns out that, um, not to use your lawyerly like Latin stuff, but legislation that gives people just big lump sums of cash in their pocket, no strings attached, tends to be legislatively sui generis and um, is not necessarily, doesn't tell you about the popularity of other democratic agenda items. And, um, and so my, my, my question before the House, as we used to say in Oxford-style debating, um, is Biden's problem that he thinks he's the president of a country where he has he has 60 seats in the Senate and a supermajority in the House when, in fact, he has to struggle to get 50 seats. And I put it to you, Steve. Yeah, that's a very actually a very good way of framing it. I would say, yes, that's Biden's problem. But his bigger problem is that many progressives in his party believe that he is in charge of a party that can simply will things into existence. So he's getting grief. The interesting report uh, on CNN from uh, the Democratic Senate lunch yesterday, where Kirsten Cinema said, in light of the fact that the talks are breaking down on, on infrastructure, she was going to make another last ditch attempt. She and Joe Manchin were going to talk to some moderate Republicans, try to get them back on board, revive these talks, talk about potentially some other issues in the stalled Biden agenda. And apparently, after she left, according to the CNN report, one Democrat progressive after another stood up and said, enough, we're done with with bipartisanship. This is crazy. We're losing the agenda. This cannot work. Maisie Hirono, a Democratic senator from Hawaii, said something like, I'm sick of bipartisanship or so something to that effect. Um, uh, Sheldon Whitehouse from Rhode Island, another progressive, uh, uh, offered similar sentiments. The problem that those Democrats face both in the Senate and then the, the um, sort of outspoken progressive caucus in the House is math. They can't do that. They can walk away from bipartisanship. If they walk away from bipartisanship, nothing happens. They can pass an infrastructure bill or part of an infrastructure bill on reconciliation, which is the complicated process by which Democrats can pass uh, legislation with budget related outcomes 
but with only 50 votes. So 50 votes plus Com- Vice President Kamala Harris. But they can only do that on infrastructure. Everything else that we're talking about, police reform, the sort of fake election reform bill that Democrats have been pushing, one thing after another after another, dies unless there's bipartisan support for it. So what you're facing is, I mean, in in some ways it is reminiscent of what you had from some Republicans in the 2013-2014 timeframe, where Ted Cruz and others would say, we can sort of will Obamacare out of existence, despite the fact that Barack Obama is president. Now, the, the congressional makeup was different, of course, at the time. And there were ways that Republicans can could make their arguments. There were benefits to making the arguments that Republicans made against Obamacare just in terms of framing for the 2014 midterm elections. But you can't simply declare that you're sick of bipartisanship and then will the agenda to pass. It doesn't work that way. So I heard, um, I know we're not supposed to like key off of TV cable punditry, but um, that guy, Anand Jihardas, I just don't know how to pronounce his last name. Um, they had him on Morning Joe to talk about this ProPublica story about, uh, which I think is outrage and one day we'll talk about it. But um, uh, Josh Barrow was also on and Josh made absolutely legitimate, means more liberal than I am, points about what you could do to the tax code to fix these alleged problems and yada, yada, yada. Um, and he was talking about how the Democrats might be able to do that when some of these things expire and in Congress, blah, 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 blah. Uh, but maybe even the next Congress to be more possible to get some of this stuff done. And Anan Jihardis responds, I don't, th- I think this all misses the point. We shouldn't be talking about what is plausible or possible in one Congress or another. We should be talking about what really needs to be done. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and, and, and then he goes off about a wealth tax and all this kind of stuff. And so Sarah, I mean, I'm long on record saying both parties are determined to be minority parties. <laughs> isn't, isn't this a great example of how primary bubbles and blue Twitter and blue and checkmark Twitter bubbles make people disdainful of actual facts on the ground in reality and that's it drives so much of the debate is about what ought rather than what is i also think that there's they're missing a point on this infrastructure bill by failing to get 10 republican votes on the infrastructure bill they can still pass an infrastructure bill probably a bigger one a broader one than the one they could get with 10 Republican votes. That was always kind of the holdup, I think, in the Democratic Senate caucus of why they were so upset with this effort at bipartisanship. But what Biden, I think, knows, and I think at least some at the White House know of why they were pursuing this strategy in the first place, is that it's a it's a gateway drug. If you can get 10 Republicans, show good faith in these negotiations, there's all sorts of stuff they cannot do through reconciliation. Reconciliation to use an overly simplified version of it, you can only do with money, things that are money-based. You can't do it with things that simply change the way laws work. I'm thinking here of qualified immunity, immigration reform, gun control. You can't do any of those through the reconciliation process. You have to have 10 Republicans. By cutting down the infrastructure talks now and, and sort of kowtowing, I think, to the Democratic caucus in the Senate, 
Because yes, they'll still get an infrastructure deal. They will. It's correct. But they're not going to get any of those other things because Republicans were negotiating in good faith. The White House has acknowledged that. I think it's pretty clear by their frustration on both sides. That to me is a sign of good faith negotiations when both sides seem exhausted and frustrated. Um, To throw that away, when they weren't yet at a stalemate, Republicans were still coming back with new proposals. The White House was still coming back with their new versions. Uh, To simply stop talks at this point, I think will signal bad faith to those potential 10 Republicans that you would need on police reform, immigration reform, any sort of gun agreement. Uh, And so I think then they're throwing away the rest of his legislative agenda over this I think that's a mistake. I think they could have gotten 10 senators. Um, I think you saw like Tim Scott's heart sink when uh, that statement went out from Shelley Moore Capito. And in fact, his statement later uh, yesterday was that he does not think that June is a viable timeline anymore for criminal justice reform. That has to be at least in part because you can't then say there's no log rolling going on. There's no infrastructure log rolling of look. Let's do the pay for this other way. Um, in exchange, I'll be one of your 10 votes on DACA. That's gone now. It's a, it's a very, very, very short-sighted worldview from the Democratic caucus. Uh, and I agree primaries have something to do with it. I mean, this is why ranked choice voting, Jonah, it's coming up <laughs> right under right under the election commission. So um, I'm excited to see how New York turns out in a week. Um, so I don't want to, because our next topic is the crown regent, Joe Manchin. Um, (laughs) and I don't want to infringe upon that. Um, but so David, do you think what, I mean, it is, I think it's fair to say early in the Biden administration. Do you think it's possible though, given that the reality, the political reality is so much different than what they came in hoping it would be or thinking it was? Does Biden have the bandwidth and the flexibility within his administration to actually change gears and deal with the the political facts on the ground? And or do you think he's just going to keep trying to go big and and come up short? I mean, he he had you know, this is a guy who was a legislator for 300 years before he became president. So in theory, he's got the bandwidth and the flexibility and the experience to um, transition from, oh, wait, I'm FDR into, wait a minute, I've, uh, or, hey, I'm FDR to, wait a minute, I've got a narrow, narrow. I'm James K. Polk. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, James K. Polk got a lot done in one term, but. He did. Uh, but, you know, to transition into this compromiser mode, and there are some things that are kind of right there on the table uh, if you want to go, if you want to be more modest. I mean, the, the, the policing reform bill, they're, they appear to be somewhat kind of in the neighborhood of close. There is a much more openness on the John L. Lewis Voting Rights Act than there is on this monstrosity of H.R. 1. So there are things that are out there. But what he started out with was sort of, you know, home, not just a home run swing, but trying to go for a grand slam after grand slam after grand slam, including on some bills like H.R. 1 and the Equality Act that were constructed in such a way that they truth be told probably you didn't want to have you didn't have 50 democratic senators who truly wanted to vote for him i mean and, and joe manchin came out and 
did folks a, some folks a favor on the Democratic side of the aisle by saying no to HR HR one. So that meant that it wasn't even argument about the filibuster anymore. So yeah, in theory, you've got a guy who was a legislator for decades who now can reset expectations and go for attainable goals. But as you were saying, Jonah, I mean, there is a progressive base that's operating in some ways that is a little bit similar to the way some part of the Tea Party operated in the Obama era. And it's not just math. It's almost like it's a civics lesson as well. Um, This is just not how the system works here. And it plays great on Twitter, but, you know, not to uh, transition too quickly into the Lord of the coal-soaked hills, first of his name, Joe Manchin, but they're, (laughs) they're asking him not just to light his political career on fire, they're also asking him to do things he probably doesn't really believe in. So, you know, they're, they're not even really appealing to his core beliefs so much as they're just trying to bully him. And I just don't think that's going to work. Well, let us then move on to the first of his name. <laughs> Joe Manchin is the 50th vote in a 50-person Democratic majority with the vice president as the tie-breaking vote. There is no legislative bill that can reach Joe Biden's desk without Joe Manchin giving his thumbs up. We saw that with Neera Tandon's nomination for the Office of Management and Budget. And we saw it this weekend when he said he would not support H.R. 1, the For the People Act. What was interesting about that, though, is he said his reasons for not supporting it. He didn't mention the policies in the bill itself. He said the reasons were that no Republican supported it and that he thought it would cause further partisan division in the country. So my question to you, Jonah, is, is Joe Manchin hurting Democrats because they no longer have the talking point that it's only Republicans who are obstructionists here, that in fact, you know, the call's coming from inside the House? Or is he helping Democrats because standing athwart their more left-wing, more partisan goals, he's actually moving the party into a more centrist place for 2022 and giving cover to a lot of other Democrats who might want to vote against this stuff but don't want to get the ire of progressives in their primaries or even in their general election lose base support. Which is it? Yeah, so... um... I think it's the latter. I think he is long term. He is clearly helping the Democratic Party. And if you define long term as the 2022 midterms or the 2032 midterms, you know, I mean, if you going forward, uh, bringing the Democratic Party centerward is good for the Democratic Party. Um, actually, just bringing the Democratic Party to where the the average Democratic voter is which is rightward from where the Democratic Party in Washington is, would be good for the Democratic Party and, you know, good for the country, which is nice, too. Um, but this thing I was describing earlier about the sort of the, the intellectual civil war on the left, which I also think as a mirror version on the right of the is versus otters, right? The, the people who want to talk about the way the world should be versus the way that people want to deal with the world as it is. Um, for the for the people who think that they have some sort of green lantern wing, ring and can just apply as much uh, willpower as possible and that will change everything, um, 
for them, Joe Manchin's a traitor, right? And he's because he's not only it's not it's not just that he's standing in the way of a lot of bad messaging. I mean, that's that's one of the great ironies in this is I tweeted earlier this morning that you kind of want a remake of the Twilight Zone where the guy comes running up saying it's a cookbook, it's a cookbook. Have some centrist Democrat running into the caucus screaming, it's a messaging bill. <laughs> it's a messaging bill. Like this was not intended to be legislation in the first place. Um, but for the crowd who takes their own messaging very seriously and literally, uh, they see Manchin as as a demonic figure. And <laughs> it's just so ludicrous to me because, you know, the the pack that launched, the pack that was early getting AOC launched, literally has fundraising emails saying, let's find the next AOC in West Virginia. And like the AOC in West Virginia, if such a person exists, is running a lesbian bookstore in some college town and is not like on the cusp of becoming a political juggernaut in a state that voted for Donald Trump by 39 points. And um, and so I think like Manchin is helping. And I I think that a lot of people who never could under a lot of elite liberals who never understood why Republicans, not necessarily me, but and not, and not Steve and probably not David. I don't know about Sarah because, you know, she was so such a rabid partisan, but, <laughs> uh, um, people who never really understood why a lot of like sincere Republicans got really pissed off at John McCain. Joe Manchin is the Democrats, John McCain. It's not that he's philosophically opposed to everything that they want to do. I mean, he's opposed to some of it, but it's, it's that he's not going along with the procedural everybody vote together stuff. And that drives partisans batty. And it's kind of fun to watch. <laughs> uh, David, it's the tale of the two Joes here. You have Joe Biden who wants to be FDR and you have Joe Manchin saying, I'm not going to go along without bipartisan support. Some speculate that Joe Biden doesn't really understand Joe Manchin or what he wants. What do you think Joe Manchin wants in all of this? Well, one thing, I don't want to dive too far into his head because I don't know the man, but one thing I bet he wants is to remain a senator. So <laughs> I I don't know. I'm just rank speculation here. You got to show your math on that. Yeah. Baby. And, and look, I mean, we got to realize how much of a unicorn Joe Manchin is. I mean, how how many senators exist from one party when the other party wins the presidential race in the state by, oh, what? What was it, Jonah? 39? 39 points. That's, that's Cory Gardner. Yeah, that's absurd. That's absurd. It's it's remarkable that he's he hangs on by his fingernails. And so there's got to be at least some acknowledgement that, you know, it's can't what what is it that we can do that can help Joe Manchin remain a senator in the United States Senate, given that without him as senator, all other things being equal, we don't have the majority. Um, and, and this is the thing that is, you know, I love the John McCain analogy, Jonah, but one of the things that frustrated pe people about John McCain is they felt like, hey, here's a guy in what used to be a pretty red state kind of being a maverick for no reason. Now, if, you know, John McCain had his reasons, but it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at Joe Manchin's situation and to say he's dealing with political realities that no other Democrat in the Senate is dealing with, period. And there is zero understanding of that. There seems to be zero regard for that, zero concern for that. 
much less whether or not there's the other question of what are Joe Manchin's sort of actual convictions as a human being. So those might figure into this as well. So it just seems to me this to be this remarkable exercise in, in just total disregard for political reality, much less the reality that if the Democrats want to expand their majority in the Senate, they're much more likely to do it through more people in the Joe Manchin vein than they are in more people in the AOC vein. I mean, you know, I know AOC is in the House, but you get my meaning. And so this this sort of disregard and and not just disregard, but contempt, contempt that a guy who has pulled off, you know, a a a political miracle um, might know what's in his interests here. It's it is it's just pretty remarkable to me. Steve, the Republicans are in a bit of a precarious position when it comes to Joe Manchin as well. We've talked about the Democrats, that they have to have Joe Manchin in order to get anything to Joe Biden's desk. At the same time, if Joe Manchin's point is, I'm not going to pull the country further into negative polarization, more partisanship by uh, passing Democrat-only far-left-leaning bills, the, the tacit understanding there is that Republicans are willing on some things to vote for Democratic legislation through compromise. There hasn't been a lot of signs that that's the case. Um, Does Mitch McConnell now, due to Joe Manchin's op-ed or just who Joe Manchin is, does he feel like he owes Joe Manchin 10 votes on something? Yeah, that's a really good question. And and in the aftermath of Republicans sort of um, abruptly shooting down, Republicans in the Senate abruptly shooting down the January 6th commission, where it looked initially, if you if you did our, our um, Haley Bird-Wilt was interviewing senators several days before the vote, and it was pretty easy to come up with 10 based on their public comments, who Republican senators who would have voted in favor of the commission. And they quickly, after Mitch McConnell made clear that he did not want a January 6th commission, one Republican after another, including those who have said publicly that they were inclined to support it, reversed themselves and eventually the bill was shot down. Manchin put out a uh, a highly charged, harsh criticism of Republicans in the aftermath of that, suggesting exactly, Sarah, what, what you're saying, that Republicans are far too polarized and far too interested in partisan concerns to put the country in, in uh, an investigation like the January 6th commission um, first. So we've seen that Joe Manchin, in fact, I mean, he's been, if you just judge him by his rhetoric, he's been far, far harsher on Republicans than he has on fellow Democrats. With Democrats, he's mostly, his rhetoric is mostly defensive, but you know, it's, it's, there's not a huge mystery here to what Joe Manchin is doing. I think in addition to the fact that Donald Trump won West Virginia by 39 points, you look at where Joe Manchin is, where his voting record is, he's a pretty moderate guy. These are the things he believes, and he's made no secret of the fact that this was what he was going to do, that he wasn't going to um, jump out and immediately sort of be jump on a, a partisan Democratic train in order to pass Joe Biden's agenda. In retrospect, it was very interesting. 
the week after the election, so the, the election happens, Joe Biden, pretty clear that Joe Biden wins. There are some, you know, certainly the Trump supporters, uh, Donald Trump himself made claims about uh, the legitimacy of the election. Most of the, the semi-serious claims were looked at very quickly and dismissed. Um, and then Joe Biden gives this interview on Fox News to Brett Baer on Special Report on November 9th. So not a week had passed before Manchin gives this interview. And in this interview, he plants the flag. He says, I am not going to be a vote for the filibuster, period, full stop, end of story, not happening. And I remember thinking at the time. But have any reporters asked him a follow-up question about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there's a, actually, there's a really interesting discussion to get to there. Uh, I'll, I'll return to that in one second. I, I remember watching at the time and thinking, boy, he, he, he's sort of needlessly antagonizing this new administration. Why would he do this? He's kind of signaling that he's going to be a problem for them. And there was some speculation at the time that Manchin was doing this to make himself the new, you know, the, the king, that he was announcing his power, that he was thumping his chest. And it turns out, I think, that he was smarter than virtually everybody who was commenting on this. He actually believed in what he was saying and did not want to be the, the guy who was going to do away with the filibuster. And thought it was good to sort of get that out early to try to get ahead of the pressure that was coming. It must be said, just as, an, as a, a side note, Manchin is not the only person who is, will not vote to get rid of the filibuster. There are at least a handful of other Democrats who have publicly said this. So all the focus on Manchin, I think, is, is a little overwrought. But um, he, he finds himself, obviously, in a, in a very powerful position, but he, he is not sort of uh, ushering in a... He's not doing Republicans, seeking to do Republicans any favor by embracing their legislative priorities either. Hey, we'll take a quick break to hear from Tax Network USA. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is now over. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with them on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best possible deal. Whether you owe 10 thousand dollars or 10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you are on a fixed income, they can help financially resolve your tax burdens once and for all. Call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash dispatch. All right, let's move on to your topic, David. Yeah, so um, I'm having some flashbacks. And I'm flashing back to 2011, 2012, when Obama was pulling out of Iraq, and you could already begin to see the signs, or pretty soon after the departure of the last American troops, you could begin to see the signs of the coming collapse. And uh, I remember a phrase that was used when ISIS began to rampage through Iraq. Someone said, this wasn't just predictable, it was predicted. And I feel like we're seeing what we're seeing in Afghanistan is the Taliban are making gains. And we're seeing um, the New York Times had an interesting report a couple of days ago that 
Uh, the CIA was scrambling to try to find a place for its counterterror assets because when you don't have American troops located in a particular place, it's not necessarily the case that the Pentagon is going to create the kind of infrastructure and sustain the kind of infrastructure to protect CIA outposts as it does for its troops, um, that the CIA is scrambling to find a place, uh, Taliban continuing to make gains. It feels like... Um, what was not just predict predictable, but was predicted is happening again. And my question, uh, let me just start with Steve. Does it matter? Is there anything that's going to stop this train of the U.S. exiting, it looks like ahead of schedule, anything going to stop this train where it looks like the Taliban also moving ahead, ahead of schedule uh, will will anything stop this? Or are we going to just watch this unfold in real time? I think we're going to watch this unfold in real time. And it's going to be a human tragedy. Um, I will be shocked if we see any other result than that the Taliban has effective control of Afghanistan September 11th, 2022. So within a year of the date that Joe Biden gave as the full U.S. withdrawal. The, the uh, Pentagon put out word yesterday that our withdrawal is uh, slightly more than 50% complete. And as you said, David, we are seeing a pretty dramatic increase in the number of attacks and the kinds of uh, the, 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 the willingness of the Taliban to, to be aggressive in its attacks, not to hide what they're trying to do. There was a long period of time where they tried to um, attribute their own attacks to the Islamic State and claim that they were not blowing up the the peace process. That's not really happening anymore. This is the the Taliban who have long controlled vast swaths of rural Afghanistan have been slowly moving into position to take advantage uh, to take to take cities in Afghanistan. This is something that uh, our colleague Tom Jocelyn has been writing about uh, for literally a couple of years uh, in, in vital interests. Uh, his colleague, Bill Roggio, uh, at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, they run together a, a pu great publication called Long War Journal. Bill Roggio has been tracking this very carefully. Um, and they've said that the Taliban are already putting themselves in positions to take the city so that they can take the country, so that they can restore the Islamic emirate that they think they lost in the aftermath of 2001. That's the goal. And you know the United States has made made so many sort of strategic um, and diplomatic errors in this. We, we we don't have enough time to spend on them to recount them all. But I would say one of the most significant, in addition to just thinking that you can forge a, a peace deal with the Taliban when the Taliban wants to fight and wants to restore its Islamic Emirate, was sidelining the current government in Kabul. The United States didn't deal with the current government in Kabul. Uh, our putative allies, uh, difficult allies sometimes, but our, our allies nonetheless, the U.S. approach was to set the current government, the current Afghan government aside and negotiate with the Taliban and uh, make all sorts of, I think, concessions that led us to this moment. But in addition to the actual practical effects of the concessions, telling the Afghan people that their government wasn't worth listening to, wasn't worth being even a party to these talks, delegitimized the government in, I think, a fatal and probably irreversible way. So, Sarah, um, 
we know foreign policy really doesn't matter politically. Short of an attack on the U.S. originating in from Afghanistan, um, some sort of replay, I mean, not necessarily as serious as 9-11, but some sort of enhanced terror threat at home. Is this issue completely decided politically, even if you see some sort of dramatic scrambled evacuation of the embassy in Kabul, even if you see some sort of human rights disaster in Afghanistan, is this is this not just done strategically as, as Steve indicates? Is this just done politically? Is this decided? Is this over? Not only that, which I agree with <laughs> entirely, I actually think it doesn't even factor as a uh, minus points on just the foreign policy ledger. There are a few people in the country who, who at least foreign policy weighs heavily on their vote. Um, Biden has other foreign policy opportunities. If he can make any of those happen, I think that people consider Afghanistan such a lost cause. They don't even blame Joe Biden for whatever horrible thing will almost certainly happen at this point. If he can uh, come up with some foreign policy win in China, holding China accountable either for their IP theft, uh, you know, committing genocide uh, every day. If they, if he can do something to stop the Russia ransomware attacks, um, resetting relationships in Europe. Obviously, there's plenty to do in the Middle East. There's always progress to be made in Africa. Uh, the Northern Triangle, I think, is where he should be focusing, although oddly does not actually seem to be focusing uh, much beyond rhetorically uh, in Central America. There, He has so many foreign policy opportunities. I don't even think this factors as a, a blight mark on the record, almost regardless of what happens. I do think a terrorist attack on U.S. soil uh, U.S. soil here domestically, not an embassy, um, not a military target overseas, would have people looking back at decisions that were made in Afghanistan in these six months. I think short of that, he has nothing but opportunities on the foreign policy front. And Jonah, I guess you, at this point you would say he's what he's essentially doing is he's carrying out Trump administration policy according to the broad range, broad parameters of a Trump administration agreement. We were talking about bipartisanship earlier. Is this about as close to bipartisanship as we're going to get in yeah, foreign I policy? Mean, it's, you know, it's it's like there's actually a lot of bipartisanship in Washington, but it's always comes with a monkey's paw curse, right? It's always <laughs> the bipartisanship you don't want. And I was going to disagree with Sarah's uh, take on this not mattering. Um in this only in this sense i think it would matter if we saw a massive slaughter in afghanistan if we saw um particularly if we saw the interpreters and translators we couldn't bring home and the other ngo types who you know signed up to be our allies and then got slaughtered i think you could see that mattering politically um because it would not be beyond republicans to cynically exploit it and say this is joe biden's policy but for the fact that donald trump laid down this marker and got all of the MAGA crowd to support him in doing it and calling it forever wars and yada, yada, yada. And, and sort of the, the, the Ron and Rand Paulian uh, sentiments of the right have been given full flower by, by Donald Trump. And 
so they have no leg to stand on anymore. And so the one of the greatest gifts that I think Trump gave Biden was, other than getting him elected, was uh, giving him a completely free hand and being able to do, I think, an indefensible on the merits, complete bug out of Afghanistan. And when I say indefensible on the merits, I mean, you, you pick the standard of merit and I'll give you the argument why it's a bad idea that he's doing this. But even by the Biden administration's own terms, I think it's a bad idea because they say they want to pivot to major geostrategic great power rivalries and yada, yada, yada. As the way you began this thing, talking about how we have to pull out all of our CIA and intelligence capacities, including a bunch of bases, like having an air base on, at the intersection of Russia and China as we turn to the great return to the 19th century great game and you're a good man Gunga Din style politics strikes me like just keep the base there as a matter of real politic you know this is like like it's it's hard to replace a a, a bunch of bases um in in that neighborhood as the times piece you're talking about made mention of so i think in every regard moral geostrategic intellectual all of it it's a it's a bad idea and there are a few of us who will be able to say, we told you this was a bad idea. Um, I do one last point. I think the Taliban's being very smart in how they're doing this. But being, you know, Steve was saying how they were no longer hiding the fact that they're the ones doing this. They want it to seem inevitable, not to us, although that helps, right? They want it to seem inevitable on the ground. Absolutely and right. And if, 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 if this seems like a fait accompli and they're just waiting for the paperwork to go through, there'll be much less resistance in Kabul when they it's try happening. to take it over. It's happening. Right? And, yep. that's and at the tribal level, too, you're seeing people who had long supported the U.S., who had worked alongside the U.S., being forced to make a decision with the U.S. now gone and, and saying, in effect, yeah, I don't want to be slaughtered. I don't want my family to be slaughtered. So I'm going to either sign up with or not resist the bad guys. It's happening now. And to the extent that they're, I mean, at the moment, what, what I'm seeing is more, when it comes from the right, more eagerness to try to take credit for the Biden withdrawal yeah, and say, this is really, this is really Trump policy, which there's a lot of merit to that argument. <laughs> this was the Trump policy. This was broadly the Trump agreement. And so to the extent there's a partisan fight over this, it's over who gets credit for this withdrawal right now, not so much who gets blamed for it. When the, when the mass... When the mass beheadings start, the credit taking may die down a little bit. Yeah. Yes, can I, I, I agree. Can I make a final, I think, really important clarifying point? To the extent that there's a debate about this in, in the U.S., in, in our politics, and as you all pointed out, there really isn't one at this point. The debate is not, as Rand Paul and others would have you believe, between people who want to get out and people who want a massive American troop presence to control right. the country for a thousand years. That is right. not the debate. Even people who think the United States should have a presence in Afghanistan in some capacity believe that it should be a small, nimble, strategic presence. Uh, I would say, a, a, importantly, a, a large diplomatic presence because that would help us continue our, our intelligence channels. But, but on the military side, a relatively small presence that would keep from happening what is about to happen. And that does not require, particularly with their support, that does not require a massive troop presence. So you hear this from Rand Paul. I mean, Rand Paul is, is, is a particularly bad faith um, 
interlocutor on, on this stuff. But you hear this from critics of U.S. policy in Afghanistan for the past two decades. That's not what's happening. Uh, maybe Lindsey Graham believes that, but he, he's alone if, that, if he believes that. Well, it reminds me of the Iraq withdrawal. I mean, we didn't need to leave very many troops at all to prevent the disaster that happened. Um, you know, a brigade, a, just a brigade. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, and we didn't even have brigade strength in Afghanistan by the time the, the withdrawal started. This was a light, relatively light footprint. All right, Steve, are we destined for a coup in 2024? Um, Sarah, I should just turn that question around to you right now and not even like <laughs> preface this with a, with a comment. So a very interesting column in the New York Times by Ross Douthat, who often writes very interesting columns in the New York Times, looking at both where progressives are in their thinking about the, the kinds of um, changes that we've seen in the Republican electorate in this post-Trump presidency period. And their concerns that the changes we're seeing and the changes that Republicans are seeking to bring, particularly to voting in states around the country, that this is, in effect, laying the groundwork for Republicans to steal election, that that is the goal. And Douthat in, in this column makes the arguments that while some of these changes might be troubling, certainly not what progressives would like, um, it's a bit hysterical to suggest that what Republicans are doing here is really just laying the groundwork for, for this kind of future elect election theft. Having said that, Republican states have shifted power in, in, in several of these um, state drives to change voting practices, have shifted power from elected election officials and nonpartisan bureaucrats to legislative bodies controlled by partisans, in this case, of course, Republicans. Um, if you look at some of the polling, there is reason to be a little concerned that Republicans, um, you know, would try to do something. You have 21 percent of Republicans say the January 6th attack on the Capitol was justified. Thirty one percent say that uh, an election loser has to concede defeat. Forty um, percent say the January 6th uh uh, attackers should not be prosecuted. Only 38% say they should. These figures come from Will Salatan over at Slate. 53% say Donald Trump today is the true president. So we have these internal debates at the dispatch um, as we think about how much should we be covering Donald Trump? How much should we be covering these concerns? Should we send somebody to do an on-the-ground report on the Arizona faux audit. Um, so I guess I'll start, I will start with you, Sarah. Is, is You're always Ross, starting with Sarah. You're always, you know, getting her riled up. Well, we wanted, <laughs> we want to get somebody who properly frames the issue before, you know, going on a hot rant. Um, <laughs> is he, is Ross right that these concerns from progressives are over, overblown, that we're not really facing any kind of um, electoral crisis where Republicans are preparing to steal elections? During the four years of the Trump administration, it was very common to be asked by mainstream reporters, what happens if Trump refuses to leave office? 
And I was always so annoyed by that. I thought it was um, doom porn that they were just sort of indulging in this fantasy because uh, it's fun to cover the hypothetical that will get you, you know, the clicks, a fun conversation over a drink. Um, And at the same time, I thought it was quite detrimental to America to even like ponder such stupidity in my mind. David, you and I covered it on AO several times dismissively that there is no scenario where Donald Trump doesn't leave the White House because he simply ceases to be president when he loses the election. I revisit that now and think that um, while I still think they were indulging in some doom porn without a lot of evidence, that I think I was too dismissive and I feel very differently based on what has happened in the last six months than anything that happened in the four years before the election. I think Ross Douthat might be too far on the other end of this. I think that um, he is being, he's not actually, I don't think Ross Douthat does glib. um, So I don't want to accuse him of glibness here. He also didn't write the title, no doubt. You know, a Trump coup in 2024 isn't how this will go down. And so to the extent he's using that as a straw man, uh, sure, I don't think there will be a, quote, Trump coup in 2024 in the way that we generally think of coups in third world countries. Do I think that we are laying the groundwork for half of the country, roughly, to feel that the electoral process is so delegitimized that it cannot create, therefore, a legitimate government? And everything that comes from half the country not believing that there's a legitimate government. And by the way, I think that is true whether Trump, if Trump runs, whether Trump wins or loses. Half of the country will not believe this was a legitimate election. And I don't see anything in Ross's column or anyone else making me feel much better about why whichever half the country loses will believe that the election was legitimate. And so is that a coup? No. Does it lay the groundwork for the end of a Republican form of government? Yeah, I guess I think it does. David, what about that? One of the things that Ross writes, um, sort of as he's wrapping up the column, he says, meanwhile, at the state level, the Republican-backed bills that purport to fight voter fraud are obviously partially SOPs to conservative paranoia, exactly what Sarah is talking about here, 50 plus percent of Republicans who think the election was illegitimate. But as such, he continues, they're designed to head off cries of fraud, claims of ballots shipped in from China or conjured up in Italy. So you're shaking your head. You're shaking your head so violently it looks like you might (laughs) injure yourself. And, and, And I will provoke you further by saying, I agree with Ross. I think that is primarily why some of these things were designed. And I had conversations with people in the November, December timeframe who were looking at ways to separate Republicans from Donald Trump and said, the conservative electorate believes this stuff. Other Republicans, non-Trump Republicans have to show that, that we are listening to this conservative electorate, that we're mindful of their concerns without feeding the paranoia that Donald Trump is stoking at every turn. So I I know that at least some of them, 
who came up with this plan were in fact trying to head off. Were they the minority? Were they naive? Uh, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, come on. Like, wait, all right. Before so, David, David, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I just, I know you and I have been on wave brain sync compatible yes. for like a couple of weeks now. And so I know you're going to say this, but I just, I have to. That had already <laughs> happened. States that had already passed all of their voting stuff that they wanted. Uh, Wisconsin, Texas, Florida still claimed election problems in 2020. This is incredibly naive. Sorry, go, David. I mean, let's look at what. <laughs> so let's look at some of the realities here. I, you know, look, we 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 know that, you know, lightning doesn't necessarily strike twice, but let's just say lightning strikes twice. And in 2024, you have a very similar dynamic where you have Trump leading going into like 11 or 12 o'clock at night. And then the big cities count slower still because they're big cities. And there's the 3 a.m. dump and the 4 a.m. dump of ballots of results. None of this does anything about stuff like that. And also, let's not forget how incredibly disconnected from reality these election conspiracies were. So it's not as if, oh, if we tweak this voter, if we tweak this way that voters vote here in the state, that we're going to stop the bamboo conspiracy? Or what was it, the report from the New York Times that um, folks in the administration were wondering about Italian, Italian-sourced uh, interference with the election? I mean, the, the conspiracies here were wild, were wild. And so I think what's actually happening is a lot of these bills are uh, what's what's happening with a lot of these bills is, in a way, the legislators are kind of playing their own constituents because their constituents are demanding something big to change. And the legislators who um, are constrained by a number of factors are uh, enacting tweaks here and tweaks there that are, and then they're saying, look, we did it. We did it. Well, they haven't really changed much substantially. Now, I do have some concerns over the changes of control. In other words, who decides ultimately sort of what, how, who certifies the election, who decides when the election is final. Those kinds of things do bother me. But look, the, I think the bottom line is pretty clear at this point. Um, this is, we are in such a hothouse environment with so much end of democracy talk that if the Republicans win narrowly in 2024, the universal message from the hard left will be it was all of the anti-democratic changes that were made by red by these legislatures after the election that did it. If if Trump, say, runs again and loses very narrowly in 2024, it is there is it is an absolute fantasy world to believe that there would be anything other than a outcry by millions that he was robbed again that he, and millions of people that he was robbed again. And as far as covering things like the audit, I've been like the, the kid on the high chair, bang, banging a spoon on the high chair, that one of the things that is one of the most important stories in America right now is the radicalization of the GOP apparatus at the grassroots across the United States. Um, it is not normal when you have GOP state GOP parties flirting with secession. I mean, you're getting you're getting state GOP and grassroots GOP conspiracy theories that some of them, and I live in the middle of Red America, every now and then I hear one and I think, I've never even heard that one before. 
And I think that the radicalization of the grassroots apparatus of the GOP is one of the most important stories in America. And I think, oddly enough, for all of the, you know, a lot of the sort of paranoia of the Acela corridor, it's actually undercovered. Um, it's actually undercovered. So this is why we sent our Audrey Falberg to Arizona to do some on the ground reporting about what's happening with the with the audit. And, and we, we have a piece coming out tomorrow uh, that I think will be illuminating in many, many respects and should get lots of attention. Um, Jonah, counterpoint to David's early argument there. Let's let's say Republicans, including and especially Republicans who understood that the election was not stolen did nothing. Donald Trump is stoking this. You know, we get to the point where, you know, this latest poll is 53% of Republicans think that the, the election was stolen. I've seen polls as high as 70% of Republicans who think Joe Biden is not the legitimate president of the United States right now. Um, Donald Trump is pushing this again and again, sort of anywhere and everywhere he can. And Republican officials respond by saying and doing nothing. They say, the president is wrong. The election wasn't stolen. Really, there aren't any concerns here. There wasn't widespread fraud. We shouldn't do anything to fix a problem that doesn't exist. What happens to that 70%? Doesn't that drive them further into Donald Trump's hands? Or is it the case that when you have responsible Republicans speaking out about these things, you bring that 70% number down incrementally by pushing back on the premise? Um, look, I, I, I agree with you that, that you need to push back on the premise on these things. And I think that, 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 you know, so Sarah used the phrase, which I like, and I shall probably use to the dismay of many people to excess of doom porn. Um, and I think that not to, not to be confused with dune porn, which is stuff <laughs> themed to the Frank Herbert sci-fi novel, uh, which I'm sure exists, but, um, <laughs> Uh, um, the one of the real problems, not to get d more dismaying, but one of the real problems with the prevalence of of free access to porn, particularly for teenagers, I mean real porn, is that there are now these surveys that show that lots of teenagers think that like the stuff they see on porn sites is what sex is really like, and they start to think it's real, and then they start to behave accordingly. And part of the problem with the doom porn, which I'm not trying to call do both sides parody or anything like that, but let's be honest. A lot of the, this doom porn stuff started with Democrats talking about voter suppression where voter suppression did not in fact exist. Stacey Abrams saying that, you know, refusing to concede and all these kinds of things. There's a lot of this stuff on both sides and what's on the Republican side is worse and dumber. I think everyone has to concede that, um, and more dangerous. But in some ways, at this point, it does not matter what the Republican leadership thinks because the Republican leadership has gotten to the point where they have they've mainlined this sort of, uh, uh, you know, sort of dopamine addiction with the base where they've been feeding them for so long, riding this tiger for so long. They don't know how to get off and they don't know how to reason with their own base because they're terrified of their own base. Um, you know, Josh Krauschheimer has this good piece about how, how, how Trump may be blowing the taking back the Senate for Republicans because he's putting his thumb on the scales with a bunch of candidates that whose primary role is to be sycophants to him rather than the ones with the best chance of winning. And 
Um, and Republican, you know, there's a great blind quote in there from a Republican talking about how, you know, from a Republican strategist saying the key is to not is not to set him off. Right. Um, it doesn't mean you always have to suck up to him. It's just that you don't want him to get angry at you. And like that's supposed to be a Republican strategist. Right. That is like, like you know, the, the really inside baseball, clever, you know, kind of thinking is treating Donald Trump like the kid from the Twilight Zone who has superpowers that everybody is terrified of making mad is now what counts for Republican strategery these days. And I think that, I think Ross is too Pollyannish about this. I think that when, and I think the people who thought that this was a good idea to talk about how they're doing election integrity reform didn't realize the monster that they were creating and feeding into because the way people's brains work when they're in conspiracy theory mode is, you know, aha, even they see that there's something there. So that, you know, and then they extrapolate. It's sort of like the release of these UFO images, right? No evidence that they're aliens, allegedly. Um, but if you were a UFO enthusiast for the last 30 years, freaking out about how these things were everywhere and no one was reporting on it, and you see these videos and then people say, oh, and by the way, there's no evidence they're from outer space. Do you think that's like, you think your position has been weakened or strengthened that they are in fact from outer space? And so when you give people a little concession that's not based in fact or reality to their conspiracy theories, you strengthen their conspiracy theories. And that's worse. And, 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 and just let me make one quick point, just following up on, directly on that. And crucially, you ha in, in your scenario, you have people saying there's no evidence of alien life or whatever, however you, you phrase it. The, to me, what's been missing from responsible Republican rhetoric, for the most part, since the days at, immediately after the election, was that they did not first say loudly and emphatically and repeatedly, the election was not stolen, period. And we want some voter integrity efforts, you know, in, a, in an unrelated way to put your minds at ease, whatever. The, you know, I remember when we had our post-election conference and we had, you know, I think some of the smartest thinkers in the Republican Party conservative movement come before us and talk to us about these things. And, and I remember on more than one occasion pressing these top Republicans on that question. You know, the, the answer at the time in that week after the election was there's a process here. Donald Trump is entitled to use the process. Let's let him play this out. But my argument then, and my argument remains, fair enough. I mean, I didn't think that was really a, a serious argument at the time. There wasn't real evidence of widespread fraud. So, you know, he could make the claims, but I think we all saw where this was, was likely going. What didn't happen in conjunction with the give Donald Trump the process argument was the election was not stolen. We have seen no evidence that the election was stolen. Joe Biden is the rightful president. People were not saying that. And you lose the front end of that. That, I think, is what, at least in part, feeds this broader uh, phenomenon. I, I can tell you this. If Georgia goes blue again in 2024, in part because Fulton County puts uh, Georgia over the top for Biden by 30,000 votes or 25,000 votes again, the absolute last thing that will happen on the planet Earth will be that grassroots Republicans will say, well, that one was fair and square because we 
reduced the number of drop boxes and streamlined early voting hours. Like that is going to be the absolute last thing that happened. It will be volcanic fury that the legislature didn't fix the fraud. It will be volcanic fury that it's happened again. Um, and that's that's the fire these state legislators are playing with here is, you know, they're they're purporting to make changes, which most of them, again, I mean, like we've talked about this before, some of the rhetoric on the other side, for example, about the, the, the final version of the Georgia bill was overblown. But they're purporting to make changes and sending a signal to the grassroots that something on the order of we fix this, we fix this, and then if the same thing happens again in 2024, because, and it frankly, it might, because the 2020 election was a high-integrity election, and Joe Biden just flat out won it. Um, if it happens again, there none of this, none of this that is going on right now will matter one bit to the discourse, to the dialogue. It will all be more for conspiracy theories and fury. This is the frustration of what's going on in the legal conservative movement, I think, playing out in the rest of the Republican Party, which is the Republican, the sorry, the conservative legal movement, uh, staked its whole philosophy on process. And then when they didn't get the outcome they wanted in Bostock, in June Medical, you know, these cases on uh, gender identity discrimination or abortion, they said, screw the process, we want the outcome. And I think that's what you're going to see here. Uh, they're claiming now that it's all about the process, when in fact, in 2024, those people who think that they're placating uh, the extremists will find out it was never about the process. It's always been about the outcome. If the outcome is the outcome you want, then the process was fair. If the outcome isn't the outcome you want, then the process wasn't fair. All right, I'm going to end, uh, as I'm going to try to do more often here, with my favorite headline from today. Uh, goes to the New York Times. A little bit of a surprise there. Cicadas took on Biden's press plane, period. They won, period. <laughs> <laughs> and Olivier Knox uh, saying that he hoped Biden would respond with, quote, we've made it very clear to the cicadas that we will respond at a time and in a method of our choosing after quiet, intensive diplomacy. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I think they should have gotten Alec Dent to get there early and clear out the cicadas, you know, one at a time with some nice uh, chutney. And, eat, and eat, eat them. Yes. The backstory briefly is, president's press plane was supposed to be headed to Europe for the G7 and cicadas actually grounded it, which is pretty Yeah, for amazing. six hours, it was a cicada strike. I have been on a government plane that was grounded by a bird strike and it was a bloody, bloody affair. Like a horror movie took place at the front of the plane as we then oh, sat man. on the tarmac in Boston to determine whether the birds the flock of seagulls, as it were, um, had uh, so badly damaged the plane that we had to get off. So It would have been awesome if it was the actual band that got eaten up in the turbine. <laughs> <laughs> all right. With that, thank you all. We will see you next week.
This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com.